Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thielen Arduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and I'm joined this week by Toby Lishtig, our fiction and politics editor, standing in for Lucy Dallas until next week. Toby, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Is there anything, culturally speaking, that you would like to ring a bell for this week? A celebratory bell rather than a funeral knell, to be clear, although either, I suppose, could be quite interesting. Up to you. There is, and I have a bell. How's that? Oh my gosh. Is that celebratory enough? That was um, piercing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That was uh, on my son's balance bike. Um, <laughs> the bell was being rung for My Phantoms, which is a new novel by Gwendolyn Riley, um, which I read last week. Uh, now, it's not actually out till April, so I don't know whether this is, you know, useful. For this is a tease. Or is it just a tease and an irritant to people who don't have their hands on a copy as I am so lucky to have. Um, it's brilliant. I love Gwendolyn Riley. I loved her previous book, First Love, and this is equally acerbic and witty and tender as well. Um, it's about a relationship between uh, a woman and her sort of, you know, sort of woman in early middle age and her very difficult aging mother, kind of classic Gwendolyn Riley territory. They're both sort of doing this dance around each other the mother's a bit needy, but also incredibly emotionally unavailable at the same time. And the the, the woman, um, the narrator, is is trying to sort of be a good daughter, but also perpetually infuriated by her. <laughs> and it's written this very cool and spare and precise prose that Gwendolyn... Well, Riley that's what we expect of, of Gwendolyn Riley now, isn't it? Yeah. And it was just... I just hoovered it up last week. It was, it's the... I'm about to judge a literary prize and a consignment of 23 books is arriving this afternoon. So this is my last kind of piece of pleasure reading until I get down to the serious work <laughs> reading. So I think I, you know, I particularly enjoyed it for that reason too, but actually on its own terms, it's really, it's one of the, one of the best things I've read in a while. So Excellent. Um, a worthy addition to the brilliantly twisted mother daughter relationships of fiction then. Exactly. Very, very much in that canon. Excellent. Um, well, before we move on, I would also like to fill listeners in on something from this week's letters page. Uh, so last week, Lucy and I began the programme by talking about Sean Evans's new book, Maiden Voyages, Women and the Golden Age of Transatlantic Travel, in which it is noticed that when a woman gave birth below decks, after concealing her pregnant state, there might be a whip around among the rich on board. So one mother got £450, uh, which is £13,000 in today's money, and another got a Ford car. Um, the captain would register the birth, uh, and on a British ship, the certificate would always say Stepney which was intriguing. Um, but then we got this letter from Bernard Richards in Oxford, and he offers a possible reason. I wonder, he says, if this is because attachable spare tyres on cars early in the century were known as Stepneys after the street in Clonelly, where they were invented by Thomas Morris Davis and Walter Davis. The device was patented in 1904. Uh, and then he says in chapter 11 of Howard's End, Charles Wilcox says to his chauffeur, now, Crane, just don't forget to put on the Stepney wheel. I don't suppose most modern readers have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. So really, I'm just offering listeners this as the apotheosis of a TLS letter. Thank you, Bernard Richards from Oxford. Uh, coming up on this week's show, 
Can a book make you a better person? Can even the high modernists be mined for lessons in life? Apparently so. Joanna Scutts will fill us in on the relationship between literature and self-help. To some it's exhilarating, to others troubling, to others still profitable. But in all cases, it seems, it is complicated. And we check in on the debate still going on around the official Home Office history of Britain, full of omissions and riddled with errors. It is a document of grave consequence and must not be ignored. But first, we will aim to do history right as we turn to Stalin, a man whose life, as our writer Stephen Lovell points out, is no stranger to distortion. Our review essay this week takes in two important biographies, the first of which by Ronald Grigor Suni shows us Stalin as a young man, all too human, while the second by Evgeny Dobrenko, translated by Jesse Savage, gives us something altogether less real, a figure whose humanity is veiled by his mythical image as father of the Soviet nation. Stephen Lovell, Professor of Modern History at King's College London, joins us on the line now to help us reconcile the two. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Um, you describe reading these two books together as a disorientating experience. How so? Yes, uh, the main reason is that they uh, leave out the, the main part of Stalin's career, or what's considered the main part of his career, from revolution to World War II. So we see the very young Stalin becoming a revolutionary up to 1917, up to the moment of the Bolshevik takeover in October 1917. And then we fast forward to Dobrenko's book, to the high Stalinist period, um, and very much a study of the uh, of Stalinism rather than Stalin himself. Um, so that's one uh, disorientating thing about it. The other is that the books are so different from each other uh, because one is a biography and shows Stalin as close up as we can claim to see him. And the other is a study very much of, of Stalinist public uh, discourse ideology. So, um, you know, very, very, very different approaches in the two books. Um, so, so let's start with the with the young Stalin then, um, when in fact that wasn't even his name. Um, who is who is this boy man, Ronald Grigor Suni's subject? Who is he and what's he like? Well, he's born um, uh, Yosef Jugashvili in Gori, a small town in, in Georgia, uh, the son of a shoemaker. And um, it's a, a, a kind of normal upbringing on the periphery of the empire, I think you could say, in that he's uh, born into the family of a, for a while, quite successful artisan. Um, and uh, the, the father becomes an alcoholic and falls on hard times, uh, or slightly hard times, and moves, moves to the city and leaves the family behind in, in due course. So there is a, a, a broken home, if you like, uh, at a certain point in, in Stalin's adolescence. Uh, but what uh, Sunni points out, and I think it's right, is that that uh, there's a lot more than kind of trauma and 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 disruption and violence in this childhood. That um, there was also an inheritance of ambition. That uh, Stalin's mother, in particular, saw the way upwards for him through through education and did what she could to get him a good a good start in life. That lay through church education in the uh, in the first instance, and she had him uh, lined up for the for the priesthood. Stalin, of course, had uh, had other ideas. And he, he goes to this seminary, doesn't he? The Tiflis Seminary, and yeah. you sort of you sort of allude to the fact that he might have been radicalised there in some sort of way. Does that is that a fair characterisation? Well, he was undoubtedly radicalised there. Yes, it was uh, um, a breeding ground really for uh, young revolutionaries um, who formed their own. Uh, study groups in due course, uh, Marxist study groups in the 1890s in the in the seminary. Uh, it was a, a pretty inflexible, um, uh, despotic uh, administrative regime in the seminary. So it's not surprising that uh, it triggered this kind of uh, this, this this kind of reaction. So, so they they sort of rebelled against the regime in the seminary rather than being fostered by it in some way. It was a it was sort of it was a kind of yeah a... yeah that, that that that's right. It was part of. I mean, there's various things going on here. I think overbearing um, regime uh, in the seminary is, is is part of it. Youthful self-assertion is another, and another is just, just simply the fact that these ideas were out there. This was the, the you know the intellectual air that um, ambitious young people on the margins of empire were breathing at that time. And um, so his background and education really created the perfect conditions for political success in in, in a way. They it sort of sets him up for 
uh, to become what Sunni describes as a man of the middle, which is an interesting and, and useful phrase, I think. Yes, the thing that you keep coming across in both these books is that Stalin is very flexible and willing to be accommodating on occasion, but also capable of bold strokes at times. So this is a kind of line of, of, of connection you can draw between the, uh, between the two books, this, this flexibility, pragmatism. But at the same time, he does, at, at, at certain points, take risks, show real leadership, he earned his stripes in uh, Georgia um, in the Caucasus for starting in the late 1890s um, by conducting uh, propaganda in worker circles. In due course, he moved to um, uh, Black Sea, Port City, Batumi, and was involved there in instigating uh, a worker demonstration that was uh, suppressed very bloodily. In, um, in in 1902, so he has all sorts of ups and downs. Um, but you know, reading soon this book, it seems to me the big uh, formative event in his early life, and and you know, possibly in his life full stop is the uh, 1905 uh, revolution, which is extremely violent and dangerous in uh, in the Caucasus and in Tiflis, especially. Uh, and he's operating in all sorts of different ways. He's, he's still a party journalist. He's still doing agitation. He's, he's conducting a fierce, uh, fierce factional uh, battles within the within the party, and he's leading an armed band. And so, I mean, even in even in these early days, and presumably especially in 1905, this would have been coming to the fore. This propensity for intrigue that Stalin's critics noted. What was it that they were seeing? Is there a particular uh, event, or you know, a particular anecdote that allows us to see? what he was up to, for want of a better <laughs> expression. Well, I think that, the, you know, there are a number of, of, of little things. Um, one uh, big, big, big example that caused a stink in the, in the party was the Tiflis heist of uh, June 1907, where Stalin played evidently some kind of, of part in organising uh, a robbery of two mail coaches in Tiflis, making off with, not Stalin personally, but uh, the people who carried it out, uh, making off with 250,000 rubles that turned out to be useless because the, uh, the serial numbers could be traced. So that was, and that was just after um, the party decided that such things were not going to happen. Um, so there's a sense that he's he, he he can you know go off piste, uh, do his own thing, and he's also a very um, well. The positive way of looking at it would be to say that he's a very um, astute uh, reader of other people. He does uh, play people off against each other, um, which takes on uh, very similar sinister implications later on in his life. Uh, but you know possibly to some extent, is a prerequisite for any successful politician. I'm thinking now of your own book, uh, How Russia Learned to Talk, A History of Public Speaking in the Stenographic Age. Uh, what kind of speaker, what kind of communicator was Stalin? I mean, how did he develop those skills? How did he interact with changes in, say, uh, public expectations or the technology? Yes, yeah, so, uh, so Stalin kind of figured a little bit, uh, you know, uh, in the margins of, of, of my book. And I was actually uh, pleased to read uh, these two books by Sunni and Dombrenko because they confirmed my suspicion he was actually a pretty good communicator, even though the received wisdom is precisely the opposite. That, I mean, he spoke uh, Russian with a heavy accent. He wasn't much seen or heard in public after a certain point in his life. And he had this sometimes quite kind of leaden, uh, syllogistic uh, way of expressing himself, um, uh, especially especially in print. But this was actually what was called for, I think, in a lot of the uh, in a lot of the uh, audiences that he was trying to get through to. The other thing is that he was able to um, play the kind of authentic uh, uh, kind of proletarian card at times, even though he wasn't really by occupation a proletarian. Uh, but he, 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 was, he was capable of, of talking rough uh, to workers and contrasting his own, his own roughness with the kind of highfalutin theories of, of, of some of his opponents. So he was quite versatile and and by no means by no means ineffective because you, you know, you've got to realize and this is one of uh, Sunni's great achievements that uh, you know Marxism was what everyone was talking there's a certain kind of what we might consider to be uh, jargon or arid theoretical debates that are very you know, you know burning issues uh, for this particular group of people and 
uh, the way he expressed himself, you know, worked uh, a, a, a lot of the time, not all of the time. And there are examples in, in Sunni's book where uh, he loses uh, debates against Menshevik uh, uh, opponents, for example. But still, but still, um, he's, he's, he's far, far more uh, effective as a communicator and even, even as, a, as a speaker than people have imagined. Sunni's book takes us up to 1917, and from there we have to do an almighty kind of pole vault uh, to <laughs> land in the time frame tackled by Evgeny Dobrenko. Um, is it a problem that neither book covers the period from the revolution to the Second World War, the period that we mostly think of when we think of Stalin? Well, I think it's 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 refreshing in some ways. It forces us to uh, ask one or two new questions and and see Stalin from a, a slightly unfamiliar perspective. Uh, and of course, the question that I was asking myself, like, like any reviewer who's got more than one book <laughs> to, to to read, is uh, how do I draw a connection between the two? And um, I think one uh, perhaps one one connection might be this this uh, issue of, of of Stalin's kind of pragmatism and, and and flexibility, and another is this this question of um, nation and empire because he came of age in a uh, an imperial borderland and marinated in, in Georgian cultural nationalism as an adolescent, but then quickly uh, quickly grew out of it and, and, and became a, a Marxist. But Dobrinko makes the, the, the point, I think, and it's you know, very, very, very powerfully, that uh, the, the revolution of 1917 didn't resolve at all the question of, of what, what this Bolshevik country that eventually, in due course, became the Soviet Union um, was going to be like. Was it going to become a, a nation of its own? Uh, and if there was a Soviet nation in uh, in the works, it was precisely a work in progress through the uh, the twenties and thirties. And the breaker's argument is it's not really until after the war, taking advantage of the enormous legitimacy that victory in war uh, confers on Stalin personally and the Soviet system in in general, that this this Soviet nation really really comes together. And, and, and by the time we catch up with um, Stalin in this book, then it's it's 1945, as you say, the Second World War has ended. He, he has this incredibly pressing task now of deciding how to absorb and shape the memory, I suppose, of, of the Second World War in order to help him build the, the state that he is presumably uh, already, we think, thinking about. Is it clear that this was a sort of a one-man mission, or or how did he? How was he interacting with the people around him in this time? Well, certainly the the idea that uh, Stalin should come right to the centre of uh, war memory, and in fact Stalin should, should uh, supplant uh, the, the the memory of the war as a general social experience, uh, that comes in, you know, that comes in in pretty early. But what I think Dobrinka shows is that uh, Stalin's very able uh, at intervening in debates that may seem abstruse uh, and sending signals that get you know picked up by those around them keeping people on their toes and this is very striking that it, it's hard to tell in advance uh, what Stalin's position is going to be on something whether he's going to be uh, very offended by something not offended at all there's, a, there's a great thing you refer to in, in your piece. You call it textual anxiety, which I thought was <laughs> yes. very good. Yes, yeah. Well, it's not my phrase. It's it's, it's to break yeah. a phrase, but it's a good phrase. Yes. Um, so Stalin is is has that that quality of, of flexibility, and it's, it's something about him, and it's something perhaps also about Bolshevism. This combination of extreme pragmatism, flexibility, along with uh, you know doctrinal uh, rigidity or, or some semblance of doctrinal rigidity. The idea that almost being kind of ruthless uh, and, and, and pragmatic is, is itself a principle of being uh, a, a Bolshevik. And all of this, of course, wedded to a, uh, a kind of supposedly scientific theory of how history unfolds and how um, society, economy and politics operate. Where does the nationalism come in then? You refer to his ethno-nationalism, and I was, I was interested in kind of the extent to which it's comparable to the ethno-nationalism of, of, say, Hitler, or whether it's a kind of very different sort of beast. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly it's a very, uh, very different beast. And Dobrenka comes close to saying that this Soviet nationalism that you get in the second half of the 40s uh, and, and onwards is a sort of Russian 
of nationalism, ethnically Russian. And I mean, I think there's a lot in that. It's certainly, you know, Russo, Russo-centric. But I think Stalin, I mean, this is, this is the, the kind of connection, perhaps, between the two books, that Stalin grew up in an imperial borderland, and he regarded himself as the inheritor of this empire um, when everything fell into place for him and he became, he became general secretary, and he didn't want to let it fall apart. Um, and so he needed to find a recipe to keep it together. I think he's quite, um, again, quite uh, pragmatic. He's not a doctrinaire. Uh, on anything, and he certainly doesn't have some sort of Russian um, uh, messiah complex or equivalent to anything Hitler had. But what's striking is he's he's not a Georgian nationalist, but for sure he sheds that quite early on on in his life. Um, And he's looking for a recipe that will, uh, a a kind of ideological recipe, a kind of of imperial nationalism that will hold hold this state uh, together, provide the glue. And, uh, you know, the solution, yes, the solution is a kind of Russian-infused statist Soviet nationalism bolstered by victory in the war. And, uh, you know, Dobrenko argues this really kind of comes together in in, in the late 40s. And and does Dobrenko's book take us right up until the end? The main focus is on that that late Stalin period, 1945 to 53. But he also makes... um, uh, you know, very interesting argument that this statist, anti-Western, you know, Russocentric nationalism has set the tone, basically, for all of subsequent uh, Russian history. And uh, in that light, you know, the, the Gorbachev period, the Yeltsin period, they just blips and, uh, you know, normal services resumed under under Putin. That's, that's the drift of it. Um, I, in, in the review, I, I was just um, a kind of teeny bit kind of, more, more cautious here. I mean, I think because Stalin looms so large and that experience of, 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 of Stalinism looms so large in 20th century Russian history, it's very tempting to draw a straight line from that to um, just about everything else. But um, the thing that strikes me is that this Soviet uh, nation in all sorts of ways remained a work in progress, even, even at Stalin's uh, death. And, you know, Stalinism, the, 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 the uh, Stalinist rule had imposed enormous human costs on the society and a lot of, uh, a lot of healing needed to, needed to be done. You know, quite simply, the state needed to offer, offer its people a lot more than it had done in the, in the Stalin period. And that is what the um, post-Stalin era is about and the, the creation of a, uh, a, a more meaningful uh, welfare state than ever existed in the uh, in, in, in the Stalin period. So it seems to me that really this this period of, of, of you know the the com- well the, the coming of age of this Soviet nation uh, may not really have happened until uh, fifteen twenty years after the death of Stalin. And what would you say then on a, on a on a final note? What would you say you know if you stopped the man on the street uh, in Russia? What would you say? his or her impression of of Stalin and Stalinism would be, or the two things perhaps are separate. Um, but what would be the general kind of view? Well, I think that what is uh, sometimes hard for, for, for people in the West to, to realise is that our notion of Stalin is very much focused on the, on the terror, uh, the absolutely you know, dreadful things that he was responsible for from the late 20s through to... Uh, the late 30s, and he was responsible for some very dreadful things after that as well. Uh, but also, the, of course, there's, there's, there's World War II. So I think the, uh, by contrast, the, the, the Russian associations would be much more with with war, and whatever um, errors, blunders, even crimes that Stalin may have committed over the course of of, of, of the war, somehow, you know, the the, the victory. And this was the whole you know, point of Stalinist ideology uh, in 1945. You know, victory justified everything. And then Dobrenko also has a point that, that Stalin is associated with the early Cold War, with with uh, uh, you know, standing up for uh, Russian interests, both vis-a-vis the West and, and kind of on a, on a, on a global scale. Um, well, Stephen Lovell, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Still to come on the show, why the Home Office must be held to account for the distorted version of British history that it expects would-be citizens to imbibe, and is literary self-help more subversive and, in fact, serious than we tend to give it credit for? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, and before we turn with interested scepticism to literary self-help, Toby Lishtig, would you like to shed some light on this week's back page on the MB column, please? I would indeed. So the wonderful MC, our diarist, um, has drawn attention to a speech that Lord Blunkett, um, David Blunkett, the former Labour Home Secretary under Tony Blair, recently gave to the House of Lords, in which he cited the TLS. Um, and the piece in question was by Frank Trentiman, it appeared in the edition of November the 3rd, and it concerned the life in the UK test, which all prospective candidates for UK citizenship are required to take. And it was a very, very good piece. Uh, and it dissects not only how the test is filled with unfortunate historical errors and some really weird things, but, but sort of more sinisterly in various editions, um, as it has evolved over the years, it has become more jingoistic and less pluralistic. Trentman refers to a distortion of the past that does violence to our basic understanding of history and raises fundamental questions for a liberal society. And one of the really interesting things about this is that it, it, was, it was David Blunkett himself who helped to usher in the first test um, about 17 years ago. And he himself decried the outrageous anomalies in the present version. Things like um, the slave trade goes from being described as evil to booming. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, D-Day invasion... Uh, of mainland Europe was described as a British invasion rather than an allied invasion. Um, we are drawn to the fact that slavery was made illegal in Britain in the, in the 18th century, which it wasn't. Um, and there's a celebration of the orderly transition away from empire to commonwealth under, under Britain with, with no mention of partition, for example. And I could go on and on. It's a very alarming story, actually. It's, it's great that Trentman wrote that piece for us and it's really good that, it, that it's you know it's had political traction and that it is being talked about in the Lords. And, and it's especially important now because the chapter in particular that he's pulling apart so well is uh, the chapter entitled A Long, it's actually entitled A Long and Illustrious History and this didn't used to be something that people were tested on. Other things you would be tested on, I think you you know you would choose a, a, a topic 
on British culture to talk about. And I know someone, um, in fact, our, our former colleague, Maren Meinhardt wrote a beautiful piece about having to make a presentation on, on a good British cup of tea. Um, <laughs> but history did not used to be one of the things that people were tested on and expected to answer questions on. And so now what we have is, is, is a government setting out the record and you have to give them the answers that that they want to hear yeah setting out and editing the record and it doesn't seem like there's much room for nuance and there are some aspects of british history that can be celebrated but uh it does seem to gloss out or gloss over some very important things and particularly as they were there originally it just seems all the more unpleasant and trenton makes the point that this this sort of this editing of history seems to kind of dovetail with the home office policy of hostile environments and it's i find it worrying personally and so there is um there's a letter uh that frank trentman started way back in in july i think it is uh, he coordinated this open letter from historians calling on the home office to review this official and mandatory text because of the way it especially misrepresents slavery and decolonization. Another thing that we haven't mentioned actually, Toby, is that it, it seems to completely change the nature of, of the start of the Second World War. There is no mention of appeasement, for example, none at all. Yes, the Munich um, Agreement gets edited out. The Munich Agreement of 38 uh, disappears. And weirdly, sort of Hitler's race theories and anti-Semitism disappears as well. So it was just all about his desire for more land. But Yes, but, there's but, no mention of the Holocaust at all. No. Not sure Which, where that went and why. And then, another thing was the, the deaths of slaves during the Middle Passage. They've gone. They were, they're, the deaths have been taken. There were 3.2 million hmm. uh, at least, and now, now there are none mentioned. There are also, there, were, there have been over 500 signatories to the letter now, haven't there? Thea? Yeah, and it's, it's, still, it's still going, in fact. I think it's open to all historians. It says, so it's hosted on the Historical Association, which is a professional body that is non-partisan, as is the group of signatories to the letter. So you can find it, it's, it's Googleable. It allows any historian at any stage of their career to add their name to the list, this list that is calling for the government to take a look, take another look, to withdraw it pending inquiry, basically. I think now, actually, it's more than 600 signatories. And it remains unanswered, doesn't it? It remains unanswered, which yeah. is, is, in fact, I think I've... I've called it a debate somewhere in my introduction but there is no debate because no one no one from the other side as it were is is saying anything about it at all which is baffling so uh let's hope lord blunkett's fellow peers make the time to read frank trentman's essay if they cannot afford the subscription i will send them a copy personally <laughs> now all that talk of uh, citizenship and how to be an upstanding new member of british society brings us with perhaps only a few scenes showing, to our next topic, which is the self-help book. Long derided by literary purists, self-help is a hugely lucrative corner of the publishing industry, with its bestsellers shifting copies in the many millions, classics of diagnosis and prescriptions, such as how to win friends and influence people, or the life-changing magic of tidying up. But what are the origins of this so-called shadow genre, and could all literature in some way be labelled self-help, given what novels and poetry are able to teach us about life? Joanna Scutz has reviewed two books about this subject, and she joins me and Thea now. Hello, Joanna. Hello, lovely to be here. I guess we should start with the basics. What, what is self-help? How would you define it? Well, that's a much more difficult question than it sounds. Um, and I think we all have a sort of a, a hazy sense, as you said, of these kind of big bestsellers, which are sort of ways to achieve success and kind of overcome adversity and often a uh, sort of financial or uh, career success is kind of implied or or directly built in there. But there's the genre is, as you say, huge and sort of really, if you uh, look at the publishing industry, it's sort of taking over all these other areas. Um, so you have lots of these books that are sort of ostensibly about, I guess, design or about sort of lifestyle topics that are also in a way, kind of how to fix your life books. Um, you also have kind of big ideas, philosophy, politics books that also sort of boil down to how to be a better person, how to be a better citizen or a member of a community. Um, so I think the idea of improving yourself is sort of at the core of all of these books, but it's very hard to pin down and not helped by the fact that a lot of books deny that they're self-help because it's such a, it's got such a sort of this hucksterish reputation. It seems to me like quite a contemporary phenomenon, the self-help 
book, or at least a sort of a facet of late capitalism, but it's got it's got a bit more of a history than we might expect. Is that right? Yes. Um, again, it comes back to how you define it, but certainly the genre that we recognise as a kind of anyone can do it, follow the advice in this book, and you, whoever you are, wherever you are, can be successful in a sort of capitalist society. The Victorians uh, were big on this kind of genre, and Beth Bloom in her book identifies uh, Samuel Smiles' book, um, Self Help, as a kind of beginning of this um, genre, which as a kind of compendium of stories of success. And she sort of describes it as a, a fairly mind-numbing catalogue of stories of men who came from humble origins who became professional lawyers or, or other kind of elevated members of society through just their own sheer grit and hard work. So it's got that kind of up from the up by the bootstraps feel. And it's it's important. Impressive or scary, depending on which way you uh, wish to see it, how quickly that book in particular, Samuel Smiles's book, became a kind of authority. You mentioned how it was adopted in, in 1870s Japan as a kind of cheat sheet to Western civilization. Yes, that's, uh, that's fascinating that uh, he quotes a lot of literary works in that, in that book. And this is a sort of part of how self-help and literature have always been connected, because part of being elevating yourself socially means uh, kind of faking your way to uh, an elite education. And so this book sort of was a shortcut by kind of naming, this is the canon of of great works that you should at least be familiar with. And um, as you say, when this kind of migrated to Japan, as it was sort of opening up in its modern era, it, it was kind of like, well, these are the ones we have to translate. This is the the canon that, that clearly is approved. And so you know, it's one of these interesting distinctions that certain authors got kind of elevated to a to a global canon and, and others are forgotten um, as sort of an arbitrary selection that becomes the veneer of authority kind of sets it in stone. Given how popular the Smiles book was at the time, was there, was there a kind of, was there a snobbery towards it? Did people review it cruelly and talk about it in disparaging terms? I mean, I think that that, that kind of disparagement is always uh, a part of anything that's enormously popular. Um, and I think there certainly was uh, you know, worry about this. I think as with anything that seems to provide a shortcut to jumping the social ladder, there's, uh, there's certainly um, a sense that this was, this was kind of a fake, you know, this, this idea that you're faking it. And there's always this sort of anxiety, I think, certainly that comes from people who've much more sort of entrenched in that elite uh, class system who who definitely look down on anyone who's trying to sort of jump the queue. So I think that, yes, I think it was treated a little bit skeptically, but but it was such a juggernaut that it kind of, you know, those critical voices get drowned out. I mean, critics hate nothing more than enormously popular books that won't won't be silenced by even really good uh, objections. And I think we see that. I think that doesn't change. It's interesting as well that you say, um, you point out how this highbrow hostility towards self-help has its own history that entwines it with the rise of literary studies as an academic discipline. Right. I thought, you know, I think that's fascinating. We, We kind of tend to forget that literary studies or studying English at university was something that had to be invented and had to be justified because reading books in English as opposed to in Latin or Greek uh, was has always had a bit of a, a sort of sordid reputation. You know, we all know sort of the history of novel reading as this kind of very disreputable pursuit, um, and especially for ladies. And so the idea of studying literature, um, you know, I think it's the same aversion of the same snobbery you had uh, sort of 20 odd years ago when media studies was first a degree program, you know, that sort of sneer that accompanied that, I think was not dissimilar to the sneers about English literature as a degree. So part of the process of justifying that study really required saying that the poetry and novels in English were worthy of study. So it's a kind of interesting historical coincidence um, that probably isn't a coincidence at all, but it's they're they're entwined in a in a very um, interesting way, I think. One of the things that I've often um, wondered about, the kind of the more traditional self-help books, the, you know, the, the books that say what we need to do is, 
you know, jog more or eat more healthily or tidy our rooms more frequently is that it, it sort of, it can almost be more about the symptoms and the disease and, and these kind of quick fix solutions can, can make us feel responsible for our own suffering rather than the kind of broader context in which we live. Like, you know, all we need to do is tidy our room um, to feel better rather than address systemic inequality and injustice and things like that. I wonder, I mean, there's, there's a really interesting bit in your piece when you talk about the ways in which the self-help book can actually be counter-cultural, um, even perhaps anti-capitalist. And I just wondered if you could say a little bit about that, because I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, yes, the the traditional self-help um, the, the sort of critique that I think does have some merit is that it, it does insist that your problems and therefore their solutions begin with you. Um, you may not be surprised to learn that Margaret Thatcher was a big fan of Samuel Smiles and at one point wanted every school child in Britain to be given a copy. But the the idea that it's entwined with a kind of um, individualistic solutions to problems is very well entrenched. It's a huge genre that uh, historically in the 20th century exploded with the depression in America and most of the very famous titles, how to win friends and influence people, uh, life begins at 40. And these things begin really can be dated from the mid thirties. Whereas obviously the solution to America's economic depression wasn't for people to work harder. The idea of it as a countercultural sort of force is, I think it's best summed up in the idea of sort of living well as the best revenge, right? The idea that, well, if you are someone who's counted out by society, um, who's not expected because of your class or race to, to really be prominent and successful, to kind of find that in yourself and become something unexpected, uh, you, there is a kind of defiance to that. So I think a lot of books uh, certainly kind of recently have have tried to tap into that and suggest it as a kind of a form of sort of cultural resistance. Uh, lest anyone start to think that the genre, insofar as there is one, is Anglo-centric, um, you know, that it's something that is really actually taken off and, and become a big business in, in America. Um, it sounds like Beth Blum's offer, a book offers a kind of corrective to that. There's a very, it's a global community. Yeah, she has some fascinating examples of the ways in which these titles and these lessons get translated and sort of circulated uh, far beyond uh, their origins. And yeah, the Americanness of the genre, I think, is is I think is is because of the way it's tied up with capitalism. But obviously, capitalism is not just an American phenomenon by any stretch. So these uh, books she's talking about has examples of these wonderful these sort of um, DIY kind of how-to pamphlets that are published in um, Nigeria and sold in, in markets and they're kind of they're a vernacular sort of version of it but it's still this idea of kind of the idea I think at some level that everybody is looking for the same thing everybody wants love and happiness and money and how you put those things together and how you uh, order them varies but wherever you are in the world the idea of getting more of more of those things is uh, is is pretty appealing. I think in the um, in the Nigerian case, um, and I, I was just thinking this earlier because we ran a review a couple of months ago of um, a book by L. Nathan John called "Becoming Nigerian: A Guide," uh, and that in itself sort of uh, riffed on an earlier book uh, by Peter Enahoro from the sixties, which was called "How to Be a Nigerian." And in both cases, it's it's a satirical take on on the self-help genre, which is a whole other, is a whole other spin. Yes, I think there's a, you know, there's a huge popularity of works whose titles riff on those classic self-help books. You know, you can look for that. That's its own little sub-genre now of, um, you know, there's a power in sort of giving up on measuring your success and, and, and your improvement and tracking everything that you do and just kind of saying, throwing up your hands and trying to say, well, I'm a messy human and that's okay. A lot of these ideas are explored um, in the Beth Blum book, The Self-Help Compulsion, but you've also reviewed another book, uh, Reading for Life by Philip Davis. And I just wondered what, where he's coming from. And you, you talk a little bit about um, the, the psychological and neurological impact of reading. What's his kind of take on, on sort of bibliotherapy? Well, it's a fascinating approach. 
he's coming from an academic study, a background of a, of a center uh, that is trying to bring together, as you say, neurology and psychology with literary study and trying to figure out what reading does for us and does to us. Um, and he's specifically looking at the reading of uh, what he considers what he calls serious literature. As I mentioned, that that still kind of ends up being a fairly uh, traditional uh, white Western male canon. So I have a little hesitation about about what we assume it to be serious about that but but given that it's it's fascinating he uh his wife runs a an outreach charity that does reading groups in um institutional settings in a lot of uh prisons and hospitals and uh child care and, and care homes essentially trying to instead of therapy groups the idea is that a group of people will come together and read uh, a poem, um, read a short story, and read it together. So it's not a pre-digested uh, encounter. It's kind of the idea that reading together and reading uh, as in a sort of immediate form can have this kind of awakening impact on on people who often have been in therapy for a long time, are very familiar with its kind of narrative strategies and, and sort of the idea that a poem or something unexpected can kind of jolt people out of uh, those expected narratives and, and come to something new. So it's a fascinating um, idea. And then he's trying to really sort of quantify and pin down what that effect is, how it works. I, I suppose it's, it's, it's kind of an, an adjunct to art therapy, isn't it? I mean, there are all sorts of different ways of being in therapy. Um, I know someone who does weaving in therapy, for example, um, mm. or, or clay modelling and things like that. And I, 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 yeah, I'd never really kind of thought about the, the way in which literature could be brought in in a, in a similar manner. I think the, diff the important difference is that it's reading. It's not creative writing. It's not having people write their own stories. It's having them read and respond. So I guess the kind of... But the response um, is the creativity, yes. isn't it? It's the kind of, exactly, the, yeah. the reading of that text is that kind of creativity. Yeah, but it's sort of saying, you know, I think that he's he's just very interested in whether there's something that, uh, that kind of happens uh, neurologically or happens uh, psychologically, that the idea is that it kind of, it's a surprise. It's a sort of jolt out of established patterns a jolt of recognition that somebody writing 150 years ago is articulating the same kinds of problems that you have you are struggling with as a as a, an alcoholic and his method in the book is to look through transcripts of these sessions and sometimes to interview people and and sort of really try to dig into what it is about their reading and this discovery process that changes them it's empathy i would imagine a lot of it um, and that's sort of, you know, that kind of that blurring the boundaries between us and other people, which is, I guess, what literature does um, at its best and what art does at its best. But also, I guess that's that's where kind of therapy comes in as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think what all of this ends up kind of circling around is this challenge of are we, uh, you know, if we improve ourselves, are we improving the world in some way? Is there is there a connection between thinking about ourselves and making ourselves better and sort of that step outwards and that, as you say, empathy for others and perhaps that sense of community and, and critics of self-help as a genre sort of complain that it turns people inwards, I think, and that stops them from looking outwards. Um, but there is another argument that in fact, you know, literature can, through empathy, I think, can open our eyes to, to what's around us. The thing that worries me or that irks me, I guess, about the idea of bibliotherapy um, is just the idea that that a book can be prescribed for something um, that anyone can really know how another person will will react or what they will find in a book. That to me just seems um, like it risks reducing the book to something. But maybe that's maybe this is exactly the kind of snobbery that needs to be pushed back against? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I agree with you to an extent um, that that the idea of a, a, a novel cure or a, a book can be prescribed does seem very uh, reductive. But I do, but at the same time, I think, I think what you, what ends up 
what we end up sort of coming back around to is the idea that if we think reading is valuable, um, perhaps it's, it's better to focus our energies on helping people read better, helping children learn how to read more freely, how to read more confidently and, and uh, creatively and broadly, and not uh, constantly trying to sort of reduce their reading experience to certain books. Instead of trying to quantify what is or isn't good about reading, perhaps focusing our attention on uh, raising voracious readers is maybe where the energy should be going. You know, bibliotherapy, as you say, is is one is one approach, but perhaps you know it should be it should be one among many. So I, th- I suppose one person's prescription is another person's recommendation, or even inspiration. And I guess the biblio memoir at its best is 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 just a way of people trying to inspire others in, in, in what's in what's worked for them and what they think is wonderful and uh you know not to wish to sound too capitalist about it but but, but selling art um and, and selling what it is that's so um life-affirming which i think is probably a nice way to end um so thank you very much for joining us uh joanna scutts um thank you i really enjoyed the piece and it was great talking to you thanks so much That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Stephen Lovell and Joanna Scutts. You'll find all the pieces we've discussed today on our website, the-tls.co.uk, along with countless others. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer. We'll be back next week for the last episode of the year. But for now, from Toby Lishtig and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.